from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is the Chancellor's Report, featuring Mark Monet, Chancellor of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Here's your host, WUWM General Manager, John Hess. I'm WUWM's General Manager, John Hess. Today on the Chancellor's Report, we'll talk to Chancellor Mark Money and guest Dimitri Topitzes, UWM Professor of Social Work, Leah Serwin, Wellbeing Lead Clinician, Children's Wisconsin Institute for Child and Family Wellbeing, and Deidre Marsh, Licensed Behavioral Health Counselor at Ascension and UWM Associate Lecturer in Social Work. Both Leah and Deidre are graduates of UWM and they also work in the greater Milwaukee community. Happy New Year to everybody and thank you for being here today. 2021 was a year marked by a continued global pandemic and sharply climbing mental health needs, especially among school-aged children. Today, we'll talk about starting 2022 with healing and how to bolster mental health. I wanna start a little bit uh, first with Mark and, and talk a little bit about how you describe the mental health and well-being of, well, the students and employees and the community members that you've come into contact over the past year. And what challenges and opportunities have you seen uh, in the community and also in the UWM community? Thanks for the question, John. And first, let me just offer my thanks to you for hosting this program and really for all our distinguished guests that we have on today. Your expertise couldn't be more relevant with respect to what's going on. And this question really does set the stage. First, on the academic side, uh, it's, it's so appropriate that we're having this conversation. Just today, the New York Times chronicled a series of issues under the heading of no way to grow up. And here we are talking with anchors, true experts in uh, regard to the Institute for Child and Family Well-Being, nothing has uh, ever uh, occurred uh, in this way in terms of the the uh, academic, mental health, behavioral uh, pressures. So many different uh, challenges that we're seeing. Uh, significant consequences in terms of um, the the uh, different types of outcomes, the consequences of this. But you know what we're seeing in the in the academic side, particularly, is where students have come in with a tremendous amount of, of uh, stress from school, stress from home, stress from those types of environments, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of anxiety, and how that plays out. What we've seen is that we've never had academically uh, freshmen coming to our, our uh, schools with the behindedness, that is the reading and math scores where they haven't been able to, to get the same types of education. Home fronts have been disrupted by joblessness, by uh, food insecurity, by the continuing things that, that plague uh, so many individuals, unfortunately. This leads to a lot of anxiety and depression, and we've seen suicide uh, ideation, we've seen suicide attempts, we've seen a lot of these different outcomes. So, so this is significantly uh, challenging. And so in that spirit, what are the challenges and opportunities? Just to wrap it up, Obviously, the challenges are paramount. Um, the opportunities, though, to elevate, to use programs like this to make people more aware of the resources that are out there. We've put 43 trauma-informed uh, workshops together. Dr. Topitz is, is um, really one of the leading experts on our campus. He's helped put these workshops together. There's a lot of things that we're doing to really get in front of this with our students, faculty, and staff. Uh, and so that's that's just kind of a quick opening on those fronts. And Dimitri, let's talk a little bit about um, the students that you teach in social work uh, at UWM. Obviously, this is going to be something that's got to be not only top of mind for them in terms of who they're going to be working with in their professional careers, but also 
what do they what how are they reacting to all of this and bringing what what behavioral behaviors are they bringing to the table when you see them in an academic setting uh, great question john i mean those who are who gravitate toward you know, toward this field um interestingly enough you know not only are they really interested in you know, serving other people. Um, but um, oddly, uh, we, uh, those who gravitate toward the social work field um, have heightened probability of themselves experiencing in the past um, mental health challenges. So one of the things that, that we do in our program um, is that we ensure that not only are we developing skills um, in order to, to serve others, but we're developing skills in order to care for ourselves and enhance our own health and well-being. It's a, it's a critical component of our, of our curriculum. It's a critical component of a class that I teach called uh, trauma counseling. Uh, the first module is a module on self-reflection and self-care. Um, we don't have to be perfect in our ability to care for ourselves, but we want to be attentive to the stressors that we're facing. And as Chancellor Mone mentioned, um, it's not as if those of us who are interested in helping and in the helping professionals are inured to or immune to the stressors that are, are present today, economic stressors, social isolation, health-related challenges, fears about our own health as well as um, the health of others, um, uh, disruptions to our own daily rituals. These are all really common uh, predictors of mental health challenges, and they're all occurring all at the same time. So one of the things that we do um, in our programming uh, in the social work department for our master's students, for instance, is one, um, uh, talk a bit and direct all of us to um, strategies that can strengthen our own well-being and health, and then introduce, obviously, trained students in, in how to actually strengthen the health and well-being of others. But clearly, these are days where we're all experiencing heightened stressors. Students, um, um, as, as Chancellor Mone mentioned, are facing a number of stressors, food insecurity, financial insecurity, uncertainty about the future, um, and so we want to make sure that that we're addressing those issues. And, and one last stressor I'll, I'll, I'll mention is that for many students, particularly social work students, um, learning in an online format doesn't always come naturally. So we're really working hard um, to, to reach out and ensure that the, the online experience is as positive as, as it possibly can be, because um, many classes are taught online, although last semester we were able to teach a number of classes in person, we'll see what happens in the beginning of this next semester. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, uh, Leah and Deidre, you you two are really kind of boots on the ground, teaching or a, a, a looking at a population that is you know constantly stressed by what's going on uh, with the COVID nineteen pandemic, but all the other uh, instances that. Uh, that have been mentioned before in terms of economic insecurity and food insecurity and things like that. So talk to me a little bit about um, both of you working with children in this environment. What are you seeing and and what's maybe, you know, in your practice before, what's changed uh, in that uh, from, the, from uh, before, but also what do you see in the future as far as the challenges gonna be facing children? And Leah, let's start with you. Why don't we start with you? Sure. Thanks, John. I really appreciate that question because that question, I think, is sometimes not asked at the level that it needs to be. I think what we've seen with our children, especially children who were perhaps already struggling with externalizing disruptive behaviors, um, transitions are particularly difficult. So COVID brought in 
enormous amount of transitions from in-person learning, then to virtual learning, and then perhaps to hybrid, and then back to in-person. So these kiddos who are already vulnerable and already perhaps exposed to traumatic experiences were then having to deal with these transitions and this uncertainty and instability in their life. And so at Children's Wisconsin, we've seen a huge increase in our wait list, children waiting for mental health services. But I also think it's brought a lot of really um, wonderful opportunities. And Children's has done a lot to hire new clinicians and to meet that need because it's become so intense uh, throughout the past couple of years. And so I think me- making sure we have the staff, we have the power, the manpower to meet that need has been a, one of the really big opportunities that we've seen at Children's for sure. And Deidre, what, do, what have you seen in your practice? Thank you for that. Um, so I worked primarily less with children directly, but more indirectly. I've been seeing these consequences working with parents. What we've seen at Ascension is that a lot of kind of the natural, usual, typical supports that these children and these families would have, whether that's you know, uh, family members, aunts, uncles, grandparents are no longer an option for support at this point due to COVID and concerns about uh, having people with COVID or getting infected or sick or even some of the loved ones dying. And on top of that, we've also seen that some of the usual programs are not as accessible anymore. As everything was turning to virtual, a lot of families and a lot of children did not have the technology to participate in therapy and other kind of supportive measures at that level. Um, and so we've been really trying very hard to, throughout the pandemic, create safe in-person options so that they can still socialize in that way that's really been missing, I think, hugely in the pandemic. And we know that that lack of socialization is a huge developmental concern for children. We know that that's a huge mental health concern for a lot of people, that building these kind of connections as, you know, realistically or artificially as we can has been a really big push for us at the hospital right now. And uh, I'm going to go back to you, Deidre, and talk a little bit about um, and I want to I want to ask you all about this. It's sort of about so you know this is something that uh, in many ways maybe as a society we've not had to deal with in a very very long time. When you look at the effects of war, for instance, like the Gulf War or uh, you know the uh, the war in the Middle East, it was uh, soldiers going off to war and then coming back and dealing with PTSD and dealing with the traumas involved with that. But it didn't affect society as a whole with the trauma. Whereas the COVID-19 pandemic really affects society as a whole with the trauma, and it leaves this residual trauma effect um, that really touches all of society. So first off, I want to know as the caregivers, what do you guys do to personally take care of yourselves or to help yourselves in this time of tremendous stress and also a time when so many people are depending on you? Mm -hmm. That's a fantastic question. Um, That was something we really had to consciously work on at the beginning of this pandemic. Our biggest thing that I know my workplace and I really try to do is still connect with each other. We've set aside additional time throughout the week for staffing so that we can talk to each other, debrief, not just about the care that we're providing, but also all of the stress that we're also encountering as you know our family members are getting sick as our coworkers are getting sick and so really trying to 
understand how we can support each other while also supporting the clients that we're working with. And I know a couple of us have mentioned it's actually been somewhat of a beneficial process because we have a lot more empathy. We know what it feels like to be stuck inside dealing with virtual schooling and trying to manage, you know, our work and their work at the same time. Um, And so in a lot of ways, really trying to connect to some of that kind of common human experience that we're having and giving, you know, ourselves the same self-compassion and empathy that we're really providing to the people that we're caring for and really setting some of those boundaries that there's times that we need to set aside for ourselves to care for ourselves the same way that we, you know, set aside an hour to care for our patients. Absolutely. Leah, what, what are you doing or what are you seeing with, with the folks that you work with as well in terms of this, uh, this whole overall um, uh, sort of feeling of trauma that seems to be overtaking folks these days? Yeah, you know, I I agree with a lot of what Deidre said. I think it was this really unique experience where I was seeing families in my clinic, several families a day, and then one day everyone was sent home. And so the next day I was hopping on a virtual session with them as best I could. And I was in my own home speaking to them. And just like Deidre said, that connection of human experience, I think really brought a new level to that therapeutic relationship between me and my families. They knew I was there with my children. I was trying to parent and teach my children through virtual schooling while they were also trying to do the same, but addressing behavioral problems. So it has been a real collective experience from in the clinic, in the home, on the playground, folks just talking about we're all in this together. All of our children are struggling with their mental health right now and how we as clinicians were able to provide that professional support, but at a very a much more um, personal and a much more personal level, which was something we'd never really seen before, but it added a depth, I think, to a lot of my cases that I hadn't had before too. That's interesting. And Dimitri, what about the students who come to you or even your colleagues that you work with in your department and throughout the university? Um, how how have you all coped with this? Yeah, John, I, I would echo, you know, many of the, the the insights and themes that that Leah and Deidre are sharing. So so first and foremost, we you have used this sort of unfortunate terminology of social distancing. Um, and uh, you know, Richard Davidson, a professor of psychology at University of Wisconsin-Madison, is, is fond of saying that it's, it's, it's much preferable to use the term physical distancing, that you know, we've had to physically distance at times, particularly when variants have, um, ha- have really become ascendant like now. Um, yet at the same time, we don't want a social distance. You know, we can still maintain contact with each other. So I think, you know, first and foremost, replacing our physical interactions with with other types of interactions, other virtual interactions. Secondly, ensuring that those interactions are meaningful. Um, as both Leah and um, and Deidre said, one of the one of the sort of tried and true um, antidotes to the experience of adversity, stress, and trauma is um, shared storytelling. Um, so sharing our experiences in an authentic way, uh, providing opportunities to do so, why, rather either informally or formally, um, can really help counter the effects of the pandemic. Whether those effects ultimately rise to the level of trauma or it's just stress and adversity, you know, we'll, many will many of us will experience it as trauma. Many of us will experience it solely as stress. Many of us will experience it maybe as an irritant. Um, it, it it really varies. We don't want to impose um, the same experience on everybody. Nonetheless. Being able to connect and authentically share one's experience, one's story, 
um, really has kind of a salubrious effect, um, really helps to kind of um, inoculate, inoculate us to some extent against the worst sort of corrosive effects of, 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 the, of the pandemic. So I think um, I've, I've done the best I can um, to do that in my own personal life, to do that with my colleagues and also share information from years of, of, of research in the, in the field of trauma and stress um, around what, what does help ultimately cope, help us cope with and, 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 and muster martial resilience against um, experiences like these. And this is a once in a generation experience, um, but I think we have some insights um, into what can help. And the last thing I would say is the, the ultimate um, master variable when it comes to overcoming stress, um, adversity, and trauma is what we refer to as internal locus of control or self-agency, self-efficacy. So there's, there was a recent New York Times article suggesting that this, this, this long haul, this, this, this kind of ongoing prolonged experience of, of the pandemic has led to what has been referred to as um, lethargy, kind of a, 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 this uh, almost like a subclinical experience of, of, of depression, um, if, if you will. And I think the antidote to that is just exerting some influence in my life, um, going out for a walk, um, reaching out to people that I care about, et cetera. And so I think um, doing that in my own life and, and sort of trumpeting that as a, as a, as a useful coping strategy, I think um, is, is something that I try to do. And, uh, and, and Chancellor, I think, you know, in turning to you as a leader in this community, more people or a lot of people look to you and, but not many of us realize that these are your shoulders that this happens to fall upon. And, um, and you know there there are lots of ways that I'm sure that you cope with all this. But talk to me a little bit about how this has all affected you and and kind of how how you go about taking care of yourself in this in this environment. How long do we have here, John? <laughs> we'll do a whole program later. On, but. I've got three therapists on this call that can really give me the kind of help that I need. Uh, uh, no, seriously, I I uh, I feel very very fortunate to have an incredible team. Uh, we we really do rely upon each other, and uh, really, as as you hear these comments, you know whether it's from the children or family or or the larger societal and organizational types of things. What what I continue to focus on, and and another way of thinking through this question is what keeps me up at night. How do we how do we really help if we're serious about being a place that's that's so caring, uh, so supportive, and, and and finding places of belongingness and 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 uh, true true uh, empathy and, and um, uh, care for our students, we have to think about ourselves first. And, and I'm trying to promote that in different ways. And, and it's not easy uh, because of a lot of our employees, that front line, the faculty and staff who are so valuable and have risen heroically, uh, as uh, Demetrius pointed out, this is a long haul. We're now on the eve of the third year. So what I'm trying to do both with my leadership team and when I engage with faculty and staff and governance groups, and I serve on a number of different boards, both in our community and nationally, uh, one of the things that I'm trying to help with is, is help folks understand. Uh, it's interesting that, Demetri, you talk about self-efficacy. My dissertation uh, was exactly on uh, self-efficacy and the um, uh, antecedents and consequences, particularly in academic settings. Uh, so I'm very familiar and very comfortable from a social psychology perspective, understanding um, you know, trying to help folks uh, recognize 
that this isn't going to, to immediately go away. Recognize that from a coping strategy, denial, as much as I joke about that as an important skill, it really isn't a good a good strategy. Um, we really have to recognize that that there are uh, paths forward. There's things that we can do. And I think that sense of control and, and really being able to, to master our environment uh, is critically important. So, so helping folks in a supportive way to understand that, trying to share that. And also, as both Deidre and Leah have, have shared, um, this concept of, of time for self, it's so important and trying to promote that and being as supportive and flexible in the workplace as possible. Um, just yesterday, had three different conversations uh, with individuals, just my direct reports, talking to them about both what's happening in their family, what's happening in their career, that they, if they need to take uh, that Wednesday afternoon off every week or if it's working better for them, you know, from a family perspective, what can I do to help support them to really listen what's working, what's not working? Those are things that I think are really important to share. And uh, you're just hearing different ways that's that's played out uh, from our colleagues on this call. And I, I just love their expertise and, and and the specific examples they're giving. And I'm learning an awful lot. And we'll, we'll continue to try to bring those things to the different audiences with whom I interact. Well, you know, and, and that's Thank you. Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate you you adding that. And um, Dimitri, you mentioned something about trauma-informed care and while it's, why it's important in a university setting and in today's society as a whole. And I, I want to go back to, you know, there, there were a, a number of, of students on campus who suffered a tremendous amount of trauma, especially last semester. Um, and uh, talk a little bit about that whole idea about trauma-informed care and also this sort of idea about trauma-informed care, is that going to be something that's sort of going to be part of our lexicon in terms of mental health and, and taking care of our mental health going into the future? I think so, John. I think it's a useful framework. Um, it's uh, oft used, and um, I think to, to understand it better can really be um, helpful for, for, for all of us. You know, it's oftentimes applied. It's a framework that's applied to the human and social services uh, a framework that can also be applied to educational services, justice services, but it could also be applied to activism, policymaking, et cetera. And um, it's, uh, it's got some very useful principles embedded within it. Number one, it's the recognition that, that the experience of adversity and trauma is somewhat ubiquitous across our social strata. Um, and the, the term trauma here, we use it sort of in a, in a, in a relatively um, expansive way. So by trauma, we don't just mean big T dramatic trauma index uh, tr experiences of trauma, such as exposure to uh, war combat or becoming a victim of a violent crime or being involved in a, in a serious car accident. Those are, we, we're referring to those, but we're also referring to sometimes more invisible experiences of adversity um, and trauma that are, often, that are oftentimes chronic in nature, like exposure to poverty, racism, stress, um, growing up in a family where there's mental health problems or behavioral health problems like addictions. Um, so it's this recognition, trauma-informed care, uh, um, heightens the recognition that trauma and adversity are sort of ubiquitous, are very common um, across our society. Secondly, um, it's the recognition that exposure to these types of um, these types of uh, events and conditions, experiences, et cetera, are very consequential. Um, you know, we don't easily overcome them um, without uh, some supports in place. Um, or some corrective um, experiences, particularly if these, uh, if the if exposures are ongoing in nature and not just one-time events. Um, and then uh, trauma-informed care directs us 
to how to interact with one another, just to provide some guidance as to how to interact um, with one another in order to sort of reverse engineer and unwind the experiences of trauma, not just to manage it, but actually to potentially heal it, resolve it. Um, what are those principles? I'll, I'll just um, uh, invoke a few. Number one, safety, that we're interacting with one another with not only physical, but psychological safety kind of at the center of our, um, of our relationships. It doesn't mean that we can't hold one another to account. It doesn't mean that we can't be honest with one another, be firm with one another, but that in sort of at the center of our interactions is a sense of respect um, and psychological safety, because oftentimes the experience of trauma is the adverse. I don't have a sense of respect and safety. Um, so we want to reverse engineer that. Secondly, um, our interactions are laced with transparency and, and, and honesty. Thirdly, um, our interactions um, are also characterized um, by a sense of dignity, that we respect um, our own sense of dignity and sense of so, uh, self-determination, but also that, that of the other person. And then lastly, trauma-informed care, just at a general level, recognizes the healing power of at least three different forces or processes. Number one, relationships that follow the principles I just mentioned. Number two, um, the power of coping strategies. Um, and those coping strategies can be private in nature, but even public in nature. You mean engaging in sort of mindfulness practice, um, engaging in activism, et cetera. And then finally, um, finally, the power of storytelling, as I mentioned earlier. So this is sort of in a nutshell and in a general level what trauma-informed care is. And it can really, it can really inform not only health and human services, but how we interact with each other um, on a daily level in informal settings. Um, you know, and I, I really, I just want to talk a little bit about that's that's a, that's a great segue to in each one of your areas, in each one of your practices. And we'll we'll start with Leah for for you, uh, especially with children. How how do how do these practices like storytelling and being able to uh, put some of these things to work to help with trauma? How how do you incorporate them? And if you were working with patients, what would be you know one of the first things that you might in, implement with them to to get them to work in these areas. Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, it'll depend a lot on the age of the child, obviously. So when we talk about our teens and our older children, we have a, a really specific um, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy where we would implement that model with that that teen or that young adult and allow them the opportunity to construct their own trauma narrative and then share that with a trusted individual well into treatment, which is a really beautiful experience and an opportunity for them to, um, to cope and to grieve and to be able to develop some of those coping strategies. With our younger kids, we've gotten really creative during COVID. We've piloted at the Institute a group telehealth therapy, which was new and, um, and very exciting, an opportunity for those kids to see other kids on the screen and for us to meet that need of that wait list by bringing more families into those sessions together and just kind of getting creative on how we can do a little games, little activities via telehealth as well for these kiddos. So we've had to, we've had to think about a lot of different strategies, but we've been able to, we've come a long way since the start. And Deidre, in just a short period of time, we have, what, what are some of the strategies you're incorporating? I use both a prolonged exposure therapy and cognitive processing therapy, and both of those are very much trying to speak instead of be silent about the trauma. And so any time that I can sit with someone to, in their own kind of capacity, their own pace, share some of what they've been through with someone that 
can kind of espouse some of those principles that Dimitri was talking about of safety with some coping skills. Being able to share that story with someone else seems to be exceptionally healing for most of the people I work with. Well, thank you. And thanks to all the guests today. Today on the Chancellor's Report, we've been talking to Chancellor Mark Monet and guest uh, Dimitri Topitz's UWM Professor of Social Work, Leah Serwin, Wellbeing Lead uh, Clinician at the Children's Wisconsin Institute for Child and Family Wellbeing, and Deidre Marsh, Licensed Behavioral Health Counselor at Ascension and UWM Associate Professor in Social Work. I want to thank you all for just a very, very timely discussion as we come into 2022. And hopefully uh, it will be a year of healing and of improving our mental health. As always, I'm WUWM's General Manager, John Hess. I want to thank you for listening. You've been listening to The Chancellor's Report, featuring Mark Monet, Chancellor of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. If you'd like more information, go to uwm.edu slash chancellor.